When I saw this picture in the Wall Street Journal recently, I was moved. It's a story about two neighbors who are voting differently in this election. And so one neighbor had a Trump sign in the front yard, and the other neighbor had a Biden sign. And then they made homemade signs where they hand drew arrows pointing to one another with the words, we heart them. I think the story moved me because the deep divides that are in our world right now have impacted me personally. I've been walking alongside some people who have strained relationships and lost relationships over the divides in our world. One in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or a friend since the last election. It grieves me. It's sad. And this story moved me because um, of, of these realities in our world. I imagine uh, that some folks will see a picture like this and will feel like, <laughs> wait a minute, uh, that's not a picture to celebrate. Like, that's a picture of compromise. I imagine some folks will look at this photo and think, um, I'm not going to sacrifice truth and justice on the altar of everybody holds hands and sings kumbaya together. I think that is, um, I think that is fair. There was one time when Martin Luther King Jr. said that it was not the KKK that he feared the most, but the white moderate, the person who chose comfort and convenience and complicity over justice. I do not think the gospel and life in the kingdom of God, I do not think that calls us to apathy or to avoidantness or to being apolitical. God loves this world and God engages in this world. And God is renewing and restoring all that is broken, both personally and systemically in this world. And God invites us in Christ to join him in that mission of renewing and restoring all that is broken. So, what does it mean for you and I to engage in culture? What does it look like as followers of God in the way of Jesus to engage in culture care, caring for our culture, the way in which we live in this world? What does it mean to do justice and to love peace? Is it possible to be friends with someone who's voting differently than you? I think Jesus had something to say about this. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his friends around the Passover feast. And that was a divided bunch that was a group filled with doubts and divisions. Consider who's at the table. You've got Peter, who's like this brash leader. 
He's being told that he's going to deny Jesus three times before dawn. Then you've got Thomas. Thomas is kind of like this pessimistic realist. He is all full of doubts. He had resigned himself to death before they even came to Jerusalem for the festival. Then you've got Philip. Philip, who is this devoted follower for three years, and he's still wondering, like, when is the grand revelation of God going to come? When is it going to arrive? And then, of course, you've got Judas at the table. Judas is, like, fed up with Jesus and Jesus' way. And so he leaves to betray Jesus to some who want to kill him. And so at this last meal together, Jesus gives one last talk to them. It's his final words on the night before he will die. And it is this talk that's framed with hope and love. And it is giving them like fuel and instructions for how to endure through tough times, hard things that are to come. How to keep hope alive in the midst of the challenges that they are about to face. Now, the people, uh, you know, scholars and theologians often refer to this section of scripture as the farewell discourse. And so this month, we've decided to just call this series One Hope. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' words of hope in the farewell discourse. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. My kids and I have been reading this book that Charlie introduced us to called Jesus 
showed us. And on every page, there are these amazing illustrations. And uh, basically, every single page, it says at the top, what is God like? Question mark. Answer, Jesus showed us. What is God like? Jesus showed us. And that is what we just read from that passage in John 14. See, before Jesus died, he had this like single prayer that we would be one. As he is one, Father, Spirit, Son. He had this prayer that we would be one, that we would be there where he is. This prayer for oneness. And the reason broken relationships in our world, the reason that deep divides hurt so much is because we have this longing inside of us for oneness. We're made in the image of God, a triune God, in perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' prayer, his longing is for this wholeness, this unity, this integration, this oneness. But sin and shame have created walls of hostility and divisions and war, and yet... We still have this longing inside. And Jesus started this thing. It's called the church, this new community that is to show the world a different kind of kingdom, what life in a different kind of kingdom looks like. The church is to be people who submit first and foremost to the rule and the reign of Jesus in their lives, in the whole of creation, who submit to the rule and reign of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God. Our lives and our words and our actions are really to be shaped by that grand story of the Bible. You know, we've said it before. It's that story that began in a perfect garden. And then because of sin and shame, it became a wild jungle, and that is where we live. And then in Christ, we're restored for better, not just so we can be better, but so that we can be sent together to be a part of the healing that God is doing, bringing that perfect garden of Eden on earth as it is in heaven until the day when Christ returns and makes all things right again. And so it's not like we just like bide our time until Jesus comes again. It's not as if we say, well, it doesn't matter about the earth. It doesn't matter about this planet. It doesn't matter about culture, creation. It doesn't matter about our country. We don't care because we're going to get beamed up later. And we don't think that way. We care about culture. We care about this earth. We care about each other because this is the very place where God is making all things new. I referenced this book I love a couple weeks ago. It's called Culture Care. And in that book, the author says these words, culture is not a war to be won, but a garden to be tended. Let me ask you, how are you doing as a gardener these days? Because this week we will watch a battle over culture in our world. We will watch a battle over our culture unfold. But let us remember, culture 
It's not a war to be won. It is a garden to be tended. It is a garden to be tended by each and every one of us. Sometimes the church has kind of, um, you know, encouraged Christ followers to think of their lives like, like more, more in the sense rather than being a gardener as like going into a greenhouse. But I think being a gardener in, as it relates to interaction with culture is a better picture because a gardener, whereas in a greenhouse, you can kind of escape the harsher realities and elements of life. True gardeners care for the soil. They care for the plants. Like even in the midst of the harsh realities that they have no control over. Like sometimes, I mean, true gardeners, they are out there tilling the soil, planting the seeds, pulling up the weeds. And things happen outside of their control. There are storms. There is frost. There are hurricanes. There are animals trying to destroy the good fruit. And yet, culture's not a war to be won. It's a garden to be tended. So how are you doing as a gardener these days? To illustrate this idea of like interacting in the world as followers of God in the way of Jesus, as gardeners of culture, I want to share this story. It's in the early 1960s, there was a man named Fred Danback, and he had come home from the Korean War uh, to work at a company called Anaconda Wire and Cable. It's, co it's a copper wire factory um, along the Hudson in New York, 30 miles north of Manhattan. And as a company, Anaconda Wire and Cable was like a booming enterprise at that time in the 60s. But Fred became very troubled because he noticed that there was a whole bunch of like oil and tons of waste being dumped into the Hudson. And he had grown up on the Hudson, so he loved that river. And he noticed all this going into the Hudson. Um, Danback, Fred Danback, um, kind of became like a bit of a whistleblower for this uh, in, in his own company. And in a PBS interview uh, with Bill Myers, he said this, I seen all kinds of oil and sulfuric acid, copper fillings. My gosh, they were coming out of that company like it was going out of style. This is the setting. He had some friends who were fishermen, and he saw their business was being impacted because they're fishing, they're catching fish, the fish are sick, the market won't buy their fish. And so their business is suffering. And so Fred complained to the managers of the company about the plight of his fishermen friends. And each time he did that, it seemed he got demoted. And pretty soon he is a custodian in the company. So he keeps getting demoted. And uh, he literally just worked as a custodian in that role for a long time at that company, like pushing a broom into all the different rooms of that place. And while he was doing that, he was like taking copious notes as to what was going on, making maps, and uh, just watching, paying attention. And so what was really like meant as a demotion ended up being that he had the keys to like all these spaces all over. And so he's just like recording what he is seeing. 
there were very few pollution laws at that time. Like at that time, uh, it was not as much on people's radar. But one day while he is cleaning a local library, he discovers this archaic law called the Refuse Act of 1899. And it was really that law and then some of his efforts that led to changes in culture. Like today, we do not look at a black river with oil all over the top of it and think of that as an okay thing anymore. We don't think, oh, that's just the price of progress. Culture has shifted. It has changed. In 1972, in part because of his efforts, the U.S. Attorney's Office found a way to prosecute this company, Anaconda. And they used some of Fred's notes as evidence. That company was actually... Uh, it was fined $200,000. Now, that's a big deal, like, for a polluter even today. But in the 70s, that was, like, huge. So huge. And today, there's, like, three million-some bass swimming up and down that river, in part because of culture changing regarding how factories would dispose of waste. So fascinating. And a couple of lessons that I think we can just kind of like glean and draw from Fred's journey is we need to be willing to sacrifice when it comes to being gardeners in culture. We need to remember our first love and we need to leave the results to God. I mean, first of all, caring for culture where you are requires sacrifice. Like we need, like Fred, to be willing to be demoted becoming custodians. I mean, in a world where ego and selfishness are often like seen as king, just basic kindness and human decency goes a long way. And we're following God in the way of Jesus. Jesus, who was willingly demoted, who willingly gave of his life in sacrifice for the healing and for the restoration of people to God and all things to God. Jesus showed us what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And Jesus willingly was demoted. He had all the power. He had all the privilege. And he endured the greatest of demotions, like modeling sacrifice. And so we now, like, we follow in the way of Jesus by being living sacrifices. That's following God in the way of Jesus. And the second thing we learn just from this story is we need to remember our first love. In this interview with Bill Moyers, um, Fred Danbeck said this. Uh, well, Bill Moyers asked him, what kept you going? And Fred Danbeck replied. He said, I love that river. It's a beautiful river. Look at it. It's your river. It's my river. It belongs to everybody. Who's got a right to mess it up? That's the way I feel about it. I still do to this day. It's like his memory of that beautiful river and growing up by the Hudson kept him going through all that struggle. And so it just begs the question, like, when we're struggling, what keeps you going? What is your first love? Have you lost your first love? How do you keep before you your first love? Jesus had this prayer 
that we would all be one as he is one with the Father. The Father in me, I in the Father. He had this vision that kept him going. See, it's like if we forget our first love, we can end up just being like swallowed up in the polluted river of our culture and lose our vision for the life that God invites us to in Christ. And then the third thing is, we need to leave the results to God. Like in this story, that's like a long, many-year process, a long journey. And we live in such a utilitarian world. We live in a culture that just like worships at the altar of like efficiencies and effectiveness and what is practical and what is pragmatic. And if I don't see immediate results in my company, if I don't see immediate results in my nonprofit, if I don't see immediate results in my life, I think I must be doing something wrong. And even though there's nothing wrong with efficiencies in and of themselves, if we are not careful and if we make efficiency everything, then over time what happens is it's like our lives and our families and our nonprofits and our businesses and our culture and our churches become all about the bottom line. And there are things that are worthwhile that cannot be easily measured. And I'm not saying, you know, bottom lines don't matter. I'm not saying capitalism needs to be thrown away or something. I'm, I'm just saying, like, what would it look like to approach whatever it is that you do in your family, in your company, in your business, in your nonprofit, and find ways to rehumanize the interactions taking place there? Not everything that is worthwhile can be easily measured. When you plant a seed, when you tend a garden, you often don't see the results right away. And when you go and you plant a seed, some of the most important work happens in the dark. It happens underground. It happens through the, in a space that you do not see. In fact, the real work of growth is happening underground. And in the same way, we have to tend the garden of this culture and leave the results to God. Because sometimes we cannot see right away what is happening. There's, there's an interesting theory that connects Fred Danback's work to 9-11. Um, do you remember on 9-11, uh, when that incredible tragedy unfolded, do you remember initially the projections on how many lives that were thought to be lost was in like 12 to 15,000 people? And then as time went on and as the days passed, that, that number kept dropping. And in the end, 2,977 souls were lost, still an unbearable number, but significantly less than what was initially predicted. And there's a theory about why the initial estimate turned out to be so long. See, September 11th in New York was the first day of school. 
there were 8,000 students around the World Trade Center towers. And parents had just dropped off their children when the pl first plane in its ominous shadow like went over the schoolyard. And so very few of those parents actually made it to work that day. And those who did came right down and got out of the building right away, ignoring the fatal directions, which were stay where you are. Now, you might not immediately see the connection, but there's this theory, and it goes like this. All of the schools around the towers were built since the late 1970s, because Danback was willing to be demoted, that river, the Hudson, became cleaner. Because the river became cleaner, the parks around the river became more attractive. And because the parks were good, young couples becoming parents decided to stay in their small apartments rather than move to suburbia. And because they stayed, there was an incredible increase in student population starting in the late 70s. So the city builds all these schools. So in this theory, perhaps Fred Danback played a role in 9-11, made a difference. Who's to say? One person with the courage to be demoted, one person willing to stay the course and to sacrifice for the restoration of beauty, who knows, may have created a ripple effect with immeasurable influence. See, the effects of his action cannot be measured. And some of the best things in life cannot be measured. When you tend to the soil of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of heaven, that care cannot be measured in typical measures of effectiveness and efficiency. So, as you watch, the battles over culture unfold before us this week. May you remember, culture, not a war to be won. It's a garden to be tended. And each and every one of us plays a part in that tending. And may you and I keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. May we be willing to sacrifice and not lose our first love, and may we ultimately leave the results to God. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love this world, that this is your good world, and that you have placed us here as stewards. Pray you would help us know what it looks like in our words, and in our speech, and in all that we do to be good stewards of that that you've placed in our care. We trust you, God. We place our trust in you, for you and only you are worthy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.